Well, this evening we're going to look at the first beatitude found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This Sermon on the Mount uh, was a time when Jesus was teaching his disciples particularly. But he was doing it in the presence of the crowds that often followed him. Uh, The disciples spent three years with Jesus, walking with him, talking to him, seeing what he did, and learning more and more about him. And that's really at the heart of being a true disciple. Uh, Teaching and learning, not just hearing teaching, but absorbing it and then putting it into practice. Uh, Some years ago when I was teaching in a boys' secondary school, uh, reports would be written at the end of the year particularly, and uh, each teacher would add their comments in quite a small box in those days compared to modern uh, reports. And so you'd see the comments that other teachers had written before you did your bit. And uh, one day I was marking, uh, filling out the reports, and the chemistry teacher had made a comment about this particular boy. And uh, he said he needs to realize that you can't learn chemistry by a process of osmosis. Now, maybe you don't know what osmosis is, but he was obviously trying to point out that this boy wasn't working too hard. I think what he meant was he couldn't put a chemistry book under his pillow at night and hope that somehow the information from the book would get into his brain so that he could pass the exam. Because we notice one thing to listen to teaching, it's another to put it into practice. And I think often in our Christian lives, we, we listen to a lot of teaching, but sometimes we don't put it into practice. We don't demonstrate that we understand what we have heard. And so Jesus spent a lot of time teaching his disciples. And Matthew here gives us a a block of teaching in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's a challenge to us, particularly if we've been Christians for some years, to ask, well, to what extent are we still learning, uh, still putting into practice what we know? Uh, When was the last time you heard a sermon and you thought to yourself, I must put that into practice. I'm sure there have been times, but perhaps it isn't as often as it might be. And so teaching and learning, particularly from Jesus himself, is, is part of what it mean, meant to be a disciple. Paul says that he studied under Gamaliel, one of the prominent Jewish teachers. And he said, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. He was trained. He understood it. He could explain it, and he sought to put it into practice. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the incomparable teacher, and his teaching is incomparable. There never has been a teacher like him. On one occasion, when men were sent to arrest him, they came back without having done so. And when they were asked why they hadn't brought him in, the answer that they gave was, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Um, Later in the Sermon on the Mount, it says that he... He taught with authority and not as the teachers of the law. And that perhaps is why Jesus allowed the crowds on this occasion to listen in to what he was teaching his disciples. Because his desire was constantly to draw people to himself. 
and uh, the teaching of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus are powerful truths that draw people to him. And uh, in the opening verses of this sermon, as we call it, on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the principal graces of those who are Christians. He answers the question, what is a Christian like? What sort of person are they? What sort of character do they have? And uh, he uh, pronounces a present blessing and then speaks about a future blessedness. Blessed, truly happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus is not saying, be poor in spirit. He's saying that those who know him are poor in spirit. The nature of the experience of coming to know God in Jesus Christ makes us aware of our poverty, both at the time of our conversion and also in our own ongoing experience as Christians. So he's describing Christian character. And uh, he's doing it in order that Christians will be recognized as Christians, and also in order to encourage his people, who, who might all not all understand how it is that God is working in them. In fact, in many ways, we could go to the end of the passage that I read, and take verse 20 and say this is in a sense a summary of what Jesus is saying. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he isn't saying, well, the Pharisees prayed 18 times a day. You need to pray 30 times a day. He's not saying more religion. He's saying unless your righteousness is different in quality, different in character to their righteousness. You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, these beatitudes describe the character that God's grace brings about in those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he speaks about the poor in spirit and says that they are blessed. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Blessed are the poor and, and all the Beatitudes have that aspect to them. The things that people think bring real happiness are not the things which Jesus mentions here. To be poor, to mourn, to hunger, to be persecuted, those things are not really what we think as being true happiness. Uh, the world thinks more in terms of the Midas touch. Remember him, everything he touched turned to gold. And that's where people think happiness is found, in being rich, in being wealthy, in having the power to do it. But Jesus says, no, it's not like that. Uh, but poverty of spirit is of the nature and the essence of true Christianity. It's an inward attitude, not an outward action. It's how we understand ourselves, how these disciples understood themselves. And he, he's writing to help them to understand the experience that they have. And many who are Christians don't always understand what he is saying. He's saying that Christian believers are deeply conscious of their spiritual poverty. That in ourselves we are poor. Uh, the word here which he uses for poor uh, could be translated beggarly poor. You know, it was like a person who is so poor 
that every day they have to beg for what they need to sustain their life. In other words, they're totally dependent upon the kindness of others. And he's saying that's the experience of the Christian. We're conscious of our spiritual poverty and we, we need to experience the kindness of God. And it's, it's the result of a work of grace in our hearts. It's the fruit of the gospel that we have believed. It's a work of God. It's an evidence of grace. And uh, it, it's not, not saying that we have nothing to commend ourselves. Uh, it's not saying we know nothing of God's grace, but there's a sense of need. Well, what drives a beggar out every day is an urgent need to find the means to sustain his or her life. And as Christians, we have that kind of experience. It's the very opposite of the experience of the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. They were poor, but they didn't know it. And Jesus says in Revelation 3, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. And clearly they were materially wealthy. But he says, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And uh, so they thought they had it all. They thought that they had arrived. And, and actually the Lord Jesus Christ stood outside that church. They didn't feel a need for him. They didn't feel a need for his grace. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, who are conscious of their great spiritual need. It's not a, a denial of God's grace to us. It's not a question of saying we don't even know God. It's the consequence of knowing God in the Lord Jesus Christ. One man puts it like this. He said, they are those who are brought to the sense of their sins and who see no goodness in themselves. They despair in themselves and plead wholly for the mercy of God in Christ. And uh, it's that sense of constant dependence upon, not only at the point of conversion, but in our ongoing Christian lives. And, and all true Christians experience that, that strange thing of feeling that no matter how long we have been Christians, we are still so dependent upon the grace of God, not only for forgiveness, but also to grow in likeness to Christ. Uh, another man puts it like this, those who see nothing in themselves but fly to Christ for mercy. Uh, totally dependent upon him. There are some examples in the New Testament of people who had that spirit. There was that woman who came uh, to Jesus when he was in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now Simon was the, Phar uh, the Pharisee, had no sense of his need, his need of Jesus. In fact, he stood in judgment on Jesus, particularly because of the way Jesus responded to this woman, because she'd lived a sinful life. She was notorious. And uh, she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Here's a lady who knows her need. Simon has no sense of his need. And Jesus says that her sins that are many 
have been forgiven. She knows that she's spiritually poor. Or think of the tax collector in the Pharisee in the, in the parable that Jesus taught. Uh, the Pharisee stands up and he thanks God that he's not like other men. I do this, I do that, I do the other. And I'm not like this tax collector, he says. But the tax collector stands at a distance. And uh, he doesn't even look up to heaven. But he beats his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He's conscious of his poverty. And it is that which brings him to God. He knows that he's totally dependent upon the mercy of God. The Apostle Paul speaks about his experience before he became a Christian and then the change that came about. In Philippians 3, having spoken about all his achievements, uh, all the blessings that were his from birth, he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he wanted to receive that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God. So someone who is poor in spirit, both at, the, both at the point they become Christians and also in our ongoing experience, are, are conscious of our absolute need. That, that every virtue we possess and every victory won are his alone. And uh, we are like those who, who need every day the means to sustain our life kind of thing we don't very often talk about to each other. Yeah, very often when somebody says, how are you? So I'm fine, thank you. But inwardly, you've got a real struggle. And uh, you've got all kinds of spiritual struggles. And, and the devil makes you believe that you're the only one who's got those struggles. And you feel so poor, so spiritually poor. And Jesus said, you're blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. We know our need constantly, not just when we first became Christians. You see, that's the kind of thing that happens for you. say, yes, I, I, I know what I was before I was converted, but now I've been changed and now I'm a different person. And, and they speak of what they've done and how different they are. It's a wonderful thing that God does make us different, but, but there's that inward battle going on between the old nature and the new nature. And we fail again and again. And you know, we often can't speak to our fellow Christians about our struggles because we really believe they don't have them. And we feel isolated. And we feel hypocrites. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Again, it's different from Naaman. You remember when Naaman came all the way from Syria and he came to the house of Elisha and he wanted to be cured of his leprosy? And Elisha told him to go and dip himself in the Jordan seven times and he would be cleansed. And Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not a banner and farper the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. No poverty of spirit there. He's a big man in the world, a very big man. Possibly the second most powerful man in the world. And yet, his servants come to him and said, why don't you do it? If God had asked you to do some great thing, why don't you just do it? And when he humbly submits, he is cleansed. Or that rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and 
says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you sense he's a, a really nice chap. And uh, Jesus quotes the commandments to him, and he says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. He had no sense of need. I've, I've kept the rules. No sense of poverty, of, of spirit, and the battle that he had with his, his wealth. So Naaman and the rich young ruler resisted God's grace, and they didn't feel like beggars at all. They felt they brought something to the situation. One of our hymns says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And as I say, that's not just true when we are first converted. It's an experience that we have through our Christian lives. And we fly to him for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, saviour, or I die. So what are the marks of poverty of spirit? Well, there's a true view of ourselves, that we are hopeless and helpless. And we, without Christ, we would be heading to a lost eternity. The, the opening sentence of John Calvin's Institutes of Religion, a substantial read, but he sums it up in his opening, uh, opening sentence when he says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves, knowing ourselves. And when we know ourselves, we we must feel our poverty, uh, that we bring nothing to God. We are entirely dependent upon his grace as a beggar is dependent upon the kindness of others. And those who are poor in spirit are, are great admirers of Jesus. He's everything, everything to us. All our hope is centered upon him. And uh, his love means everything to us because he's loved us and given himself for us when we deserve nothing. And uh, again and again, his grace is extended to us. And uh, we, we love him for that. In fact, there are times when we can scarcely believe that he continues to be patient with us, but he does. And uh, those who are poor in spirit are conscious of their spiritual state. They bemoan it. Uh, they don't deny that God has done a work in them, but they mourn that they don't know more of grace and haven't made more progress and long to know more of God and more of his, his love in Christ. They're lowly in heart. Uh, the more grace they experience, the more humble they are. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Maybe a pastor, maybe an elder, maybe a deacon, maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe a long-standing member. But I'm only what I am by the grace of God. And Jesus said to be in that position is blessed. And uh, often we pray to God for more of his grace, not only for forgiveness, but 
for strength to live the Christian life. One man says it's like knocking and begging at heaven's gate continually. You see how different it is from the, the prayer of the Pharisee who stands in the temple and prays with himself. I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. But the poor person who is poor in spirit doesn't do that. We just rejoice at the fact that, that the Lord Jesus Christ has been kind to us and we're amazed that he should. We come to the Lord at first and continually on his terms, not, not dictating the terms, but accepting them. Uh, for Paul, that began when he met the, the risen and ascended Christ on the Damascus Road. And he asked this question, who are you, Lord? He's conscious of being in the presence of God. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Paul, from now on you do what I say. Under new uh, authority and management. And you see he's humbled. And uh, those who are poor in spirit accept God's ways. And uh, we're humble-minded and lowly-minded. And we rejoice in and we magnify God's free grace. His continuing grace. You know, when you first become a Christian, you think, well, that's it now. I've sorted out the main problem. And from now on, I'll just make constant progress. And I won't need so much of God's grace. And then you realize that you need it more and more and more. And never come to the end of it. And, and your poverty is it's like a beggar's poverty. You, you come constantly seeking from the Lord what you need. And he gives and he gives, and he gives again. And Jesus says to these men who've, who've left everything to follow him, and uh, they're spending time with him, and the more time they spend with him, the, the more they have that conviction that Peter had when the Lord called him, depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. And the purity of Jesus, the, the brightness of who he is, just shows the darkness of their hearts. But Jesus says, you're blessed. You're blessed. That's what true happiness is all about. When you don't have any confidence in yourself, but you realize that I've come to meet your every need. Because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the other gospel writers use the phrase, the kingdom of God. It's the same kingdom. The poor in the spirit belong to God's kingdom. We live under his reign and his rule and his authority. And that's where his blessing is found, now and forever. Now, when we're converted, we're translated, we're transferred from one kingdom into another. We're rescued, Paul says, from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We're brought into a relationship with God and heaven is the place where God dwells. It's where he reveals himself and suddenly we're in that relationship with the God of heaven, the one who Jesus says later in this Sermon on the Mount, we can pray to as our Father in heaven. The lovely descriptions in the book of Revelation of heaven. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling Place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God dwells who with, not, not with the Pharisees, 
not with the self-righteous, not with the proud people who are proud of their religion and all their righteousness. No, he, he dwells with the poor in spirit. Nor does he dwell with those who have never seen their need of forgiveness. Unforgiven sin is a bar to entering into heaven. Uh, nothing impure will ever enter into heaven. And there are many people who entertain false hopes about entering heaven. Many will come, Jesus says, later in this same sermon, on that day, the great day, when all will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. When you think about heaven and entering heaven, do you think of bringing all your achievements as if they will grant you entrance? Or do you sometimes think to yourself, will I ever be able to enter in? I've got nothing to offer because I've failed again and again. And uh, those who are proud in their religion will not enter in this life or the life to come into the realm of heaven, the place where God dwells. On one occasion, men went on behalf of a centurion to Jesus, a Roman centurion, uh, who loved their nation and been kind to them. And Jesus said, I'll come and I'll heal his servant. And uh, when the centurion heard that Jesus was coming, he sent friends to him and said, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. And uh, when Jesus heard this he was amazed and turn, turning to the crowd he said I tell you I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And it's not only our first encounter with Jesus but continually I am not worthy. The Pharisees felt they were worthy, but there's another kind of righteousness. And uh, many will come, not born into Israel, from east and west, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a solemn warning that is. And it's easy, isn't it, to think, well, that just applies to first century Israel. But that danger of being presumptuous and, and of being proud. Uh, but true Christians are humble, self-effacing. It's nothing to do with me. It, it's all of him. It's all of his grace. You remember that description of the judgment scene in Matthew 25 and Jesus separates them. Uh, some on his right, some on his left as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he says, come, you blessed of my father. And he speaks of the things that they have done. And we're told that then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? You see, they say, us? When did we do all that? And he says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least 
of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me. You see, they don't count the things they've done as any worth. Just little things that they did. Who for? For well, for those who are unimportant. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Come, ye blessed of my Father, enter into the happiness of your Master. Because we're following one who became poor for us. That was his grace. He made himself nothing in order that through his poverty we might become rich. And he provides for us everything we need. Isn't a wonderful thing to know that? And sometimes we're tempted to think, well, you know, we've, we've been dependent on his grace for too long. We really ought to be able to stand on our own two feet now. But as long as we're in this world, we'll have this conflict uh, between what we are in Christ, which is indisputable, and that inward feeling of, of need, constant need, like a beggar begging for food for the day. And Jesus said, that's a, a blessed thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All the blessings of heaven dwelling with him and a wonderful place prepared. So as I close, what, what do we know of this blessedness? Is that our experience? It isn't something we're doing. It's something that by the grace of God we are and we experience. We realize our spiritual bankruptcy. One of the commentaries I read told a story uh, about a, a Church of England parish which had a main church and several smaller churches. Uh, the main church was pretty well-to-do. The smaller churches tend to be in poorer areas and the people came from different backgrounds to the different churches. But once a year on Easter, at Easter, they, they all came together. And uh, they came together for a communion service. And uh, the vicar saw the people coming to the front to receive the bread and wine and kneeling by the rail. And uh, he noticed that there was a man there who belonged to the main church. And he was a distinguished judge, man of outstanding ability and standing. And next to him, there was a man who had had a, a criminal record and uh, had struggled with all kinds of crimes before he was converted. And uh, after the communion service, the vicar said to the judge, I, he said, uh, I don't know whether you noticed who was next to you when you were taking communion. And uh, the judge said, yes, I did, he said. And, and as I was there, I thought, what a, a wonderful miracle of grace. And the vicar said, yes, it is, isn't it? To think the life that he lived, and now he's a Christian. And the judge said, no, no, I wasn't thinking about him. I was thinking about me. He said, I was born into a wealthy family. I went to the best of schools. I had a wonderful university course. I had a successful career. And I made a lot of money. Isn't it amazing that God has been gracious to me? You see, he didn't look at the other man and think, well, yes, he needed God's grace, didn't he? It's, it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, isn't it? Why, O oh Lord, such grace to me? And we need to understand when we feel that what Je who Jesus is and what he did for us and to cast ourselves again and again on his mercy. 
You see, when we think we've arrived, we lose all motivation to serve him. But it's that constant experience of grace, that constant experience of love that motivates us. And we're able, in the words of Micah, to walk humbly with our God. Micah says, he has shown you, a man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's it, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What are they doing there? Humbly walking, living day by day with God. May the Lord grant us to understand what it means to be blessed, to experience that blessedness, and to realize that one day the work will be complete, and we shall see him as he is, and then we shall be like him. Amen.